it is good uh, to be uh, with you all this morning. Uh, grateful uh, for you being here uh, this morning. We wrap up a series that we've been walking through on the Sermon on the Mount that we've called Jesus Said, uh, exploring uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We, uh, we are a new church. I was just uh, uh, telling somebody about treasuring Christ, and I said we're 12 weeks old uh, uh, this, uh, this week, uh, which is exciting to see all that God has done and is doing. Um, and uh, coming up on two Sundays, we have our, our Covenant Sunday, uh, which will officially constitute together as a church. It'll be a special day uh, of worship and uh, just being together. Want uh, to invite you to, to come and be a part of that, as many of you will be uh, joining and covenanting together. So we're so uh, so excited about what God is doing. But as we began the life of our church here at Treasuring Christ, the one thing that we wanted to be true of us and we want to define who we are is that we're a people who are under authority, a people who are under the authority of what Jesus said, what God's word says, that this is what defines us and shapes us. And, uh, and when it does, it is such a beautiful and life-giving thing, uh, but it's something that we must continually come to week in, week out, day in, day out in the life of the believer to allow God to shape us by his word. And so we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 18. And if I'm honest, our passage is is somewhat of a sobering passage this morning. It's a a passage that uh, has the ability to uh, step on the toes of the religious and the irreligious alike uh, to perhaps offend um, uh, a person regardless of where they define themselves and identify themselves. We, we come to uh, this final message, this final passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it's an invitation, an invitation to life in the kingdom. It's really what the Sermon on the Mount has been pointing to this whole time. The Sermon on the Mount is this vision for what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, the kingdom of God isn't a, a geographical place. The kingdom of God is God on the throne ruling over all things, including our lives. That's what God's really up to in this world. Not uh, <clears throat> just establishing little pockets and places here and there, but, but making himself known through the lives of people who submit to him. That's what God's kingdom is about. And Jesus has told us throughout the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of God begins with recognizing your need for God. It begins with recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, our inability to get to God on our own. But as quickly as we realize our spiritual inadequacy, we realize the abundant provision of God and his grace to us. That those who are in the kingdom of God are not those who try hard enough, but those who have found and trusted in God's provision for us in Christ. Life in the kingdom of God, Jesus has said throughout Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Life in the kingdom of God is, is defined by moving towards others in love. Even if they strike you on the cheek, he said. It's defined by loving even those who might consider themselves your enemies. He said it looks like loving others in the same way that you love yourself. He said that it looks like genuine spiritual devotion, not not trying to get attention by doing religious stuff, but by seeking to please the father in the way that we pray and the way that we give and the way that we fast, that our spiritual lives are defined by a genuineness 
and authenticity, not, not by striving for others' attention. It's marked by humble dependence on God, knowing that we can pray to our Heavenly Father and He delights to hear and answer us. Uh, the, the portrait of life in the kingdom of God is centered on God's Word. God's Word is central to life in the kingdom. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17-20 that, that God's Word is true and trustworthy. We can take it to the bank because we can trust Him. And God's Word is to be the standard for what we believe and how we live. And all of this comes to a conclusion here at the end in verses 13-29. through 29. The, the vision of life in the kingdom uh, should compel all of us towards Jesus, wanting to, to know and to follow this Jesus. But, but Jesus presses us all to consider for ourselves how we'll respond to his message. It's not a message that, uh, that allows for neutrality, frankly. It's a, it's a message that calls for all of us to consider where we stand in relation to Jesus. It offends, as I mentioned earlier, the religious and the irreligious alike. He doesn't mince words. Jesus doesn't dance around the truth and uh, get soft here or there. But he gives this invitation, not as a spiritual guru uh, or a spiritual life coach. He gives this invitation as the one who has all authority. It demands our attention. It demands our response. One, one commentator said, it's not a matter of more or less successful attempts of following the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven. You're either in or you're out. It's about being saved or lost, Jesus says here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus, as a master teacher, uses a number of different uh, kind of pictures to help us understand how this, uh, this message comes home. We're going to talk about two paths, two teachers, two responses, and one question. So two paths, two teachers, two responses, and one question. Look at verses 13 through 14. I should read these again. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus says that there are two paths. And that not every path leads to God. Jesus says there there are two paths. He says in this world people will advocate that there are many ways to God. That all religions lead to God in some way, shape, or form. That's what... Uh, the, the perhaps most popular narrative in, in our culture would be that all paths lead to God. And some would say you can't claim that your religion is true and, and all others are false. I, I don't know if you've either felt that unspoken statement as you thought about articulating your faith or perhaps you've been in a conversation and that uh, response has been lodged back at you. It's a, it's a real one, one that we can't deny or, uh, or, or neglect to, to address, and, and one that, that Jesus doesn't shy away from answering either. He says, no, that's, that's not true. There, there aren't many ways to God. He said, there are two ways in this life with two destinations. One path leads to life, and one path leads to destruction. And Jesus says, I'm standing here trying to point you 
to the path that leads to life. Enter by the narrow gate. You see, it's an invitation. It's no doubt a warning that we all must hear. But but Jesus' words are an invitation. Enter. Come. This is the way. This This is the entrance in to life in the kingdom. Come in and enter by the narrow gate. As I thought about how, how this, this narrow and exclusive claim must sound in the, in the ears of, uh, of someone who maybe doesn't believe, and perhaps that's you or perhaps that's somebody you know, I, I hope in some ways if I could just step back from this passage and speak to, uh, to those who are here at TCC or to the believer, I, I pray that in my words this morning and us walking through this passage, that maybe you're strengthened and further equipped in your faith to know how to articulate it. I know how, how difficult it is to, uh, to, 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 to put words out there sometimes to, to speak of Christ and, uh, and to, to commend Christ to others, to try to share your faith. Even with someone you're close to, sometimes you're not sure how that uh, response is going to come and what the, what the response is going to be. And, and so uh, by no means am I going to give you all the answers or uh, really does anyone have all the answers because it's a supernatural work that we pray and depend on God as we talk of him to others. Uh, but here in this passage, Jesus says hard things, but shows us how they're good. He shows us that, that we can speak of him and, and commend him to others, even perhaps when they don't believe. So when I think about how hard this is to hear, I, I can't help but think about um, maybe how, how this might play out elsewhere in our life. Another, another sphere of our life. Let's step away from, from this question about faith uh, to, to just think about, think about if you were sick. Think about you had a persistent cold that you couldn't get over. So you go to the hospital. And when you get to the hospital, you know, they check your vitals. They do the normal thing. Um, But there's some things that the doctor is concerned about. Now, you've obviously come, uh, you know, to the U of M hospital, of course. And you know it's a good hospital. So you trust the doctors. Um, And they say, we're going to need to run some tests. We're going to have to do some blood work. We're going to have to take a look at some things. And so they do that, and then you go home, and of course you're anxious you know, the whole time as you're waiting. Um, and the doctor comes back to you and, and says, it doesn't look like you, you have just a persistent cold. It looks like it's something worse. It looks like it's cancer. And, and because we're catching this fairly early, we're going to have to treat it pretty aggressively. We're going to have to remove uh, the tumor that we found, and we're going to have to begin chemo immediately. It, look, it's, if I'm honest, it's going to be a hard road, uh, and I can't promise anything, but I, I think we found it early, and if we take this aggressive approach, perhaps we can beat this. Are you ready to get started? At this moment, you wouldn't look at the doctor and say, no, nah, I'm going to go get some antibiotics at CVS and hope that handles it, right? Nor, nor would you look at the doctor and say, how dare you have the audacity to tell me that this is the only way to this treatment. This is the only way to be healed. No, instead we would, we would receive it. The path is hard, but on the other end is life. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. These two paths that he defines. He says one leads to life and one leads to destruction. They're sobering words. It reminds us that life isn't just what's right in front of us, right? Sometimes we, we're caught up in the, in the everyday grind and we can't see beyond what's right in front of us. 
Maybe, maybe a little further out, we get stressed about something that's coming up. But Jesus here puts before every single one of us two paths with eternal implications. You see, I think in modern society, our tendency, and this has been true uh, probably since the beginning of time, has been to distract ourselves and to busy ourselves so that we don't have to think about eternity. But Jesus won't let us off the hook. He presses us to consider eternity and the paths that lead there. The path is hard, he says, but it leads to life. You know, I, <clears throat> I think sometimes when we think about talking about our faith and that, that response of, you know, how can you say, like, this is the only way? You know, it's pretty narrow, right? And that's what Jesus says. It is. It's the narrow way. It's, the gate is narrow. <clears throat> I, I was reading an author, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, wrote a, a really helpful book just about questioning Christianity. Um, <clears throat> and she says she had a professor who was a believer uh, who said to her once, it's often said that you should respect other people's beliefs. That's actually wrong. What we must do is always respect other people. You see, to, to seek to persuade someone to change their belief isn't actually offensive. To seek to persuade someone to change their belief is in some ways flattery. It says that I care enough about you that I believe you to be a thinking person who has the ability to decide for yourself what you believe. And I, I desire to tell you what I've come to discover. I desire to tell you what I have found to be true. See, when we, when we seek to do that, we seek to commend Christ, persuade others, even as Jesus does, where he says, please listen, there are two paths. I'm inviting you to enter by the narrow gate so that you'll find life. No doubt that would have perhaps been an offense to those who thought they had life. To those who thought they had no need for the life that Jesus described. But Jesus didn't hold back the invitation. Because he said there, there are paths that pe- different paths that people take, but not all paths lead to God. There is a path that leads to God. There is a path that leads to life and it's found in Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus would say in John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go out and find pasture. And then Jesus followed it up and he said, when you're in that pasture, you know what you can count on? I'm also the good shepherd who will lead you, who will know you by name, who will call you my own. That's the invitation of Jesus. When he enters, calls us to enter by this narrow gate, I don't want you to understand, misunderstand what I'm saying. The, the way is narrow because it's found in Jesus. The path is, is hard, Jesus says. But, but if you could imagine, the, the entrance is narrow, but it opens up to us wide pastures of God's goodness and abundant joy that's found in Christ. So could, could I just commend Christianity to you? Christianity says, enter by the narrow gate and the path is hard, but the path is full of life and full of joy. Enjoy what God has to offer. 
Enjoy what God has to offer. The psalmist says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 1611. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus said that to his disciples when they watched a man walk away from Jesus's invitation because he didn't want to give up his stuff. And they said, well, Jesus, I mean, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, I tell you, in following me and a part of the people of God, you'll receive a hundredfold whatever you've left behind to follow Christ. That's the beauty of God's people, of the church. And he says, not only in this life, but in the age to come, eternal life. Mixed in with the joy and the life that's found with Jesus is that little two words, with persecutions. Through many trials and tribulations, Paul said uh, to the churches that he established, must we enter the kingdom of God. The gate is Jesus. The way of life is found in Jesus. Following him will not be easy. It comes with its fair share of trials and tribulations and perhaps persecutions. But oh, the pasture. To sit near the streams of living water. To enjoy the presence of God. To know that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that though we fall, he will uphold us by his righteous right hand. That's the invitation that Jesus offers He says few will find it. Some people speculate, does this mean that there will be more who believe than who don't believe? And I don't think that's really what Jesus is inviting us to speculate about. I think what he's pressing all of us to do is to ask ourselves, what path are we on? Have we entered by the narrow gate? That is the most pressing question. Two paths. Not all paths lead to God. You might remember this, uh, some of you. um, I was reminded of it watching YouTube videos this week. Uh, Oprah uh, was doing one of her talk shows back in the the 90s. Um, I think, judging by the style of the the lady's hair, uh, it looked like it might have been the 90s. Um, But um, they were having a discussion about different ways to God. I don't remember who all the panelists were, but... Kind of the tone and the tenor of the conversation was like what we just said. All, all paths lead to God. And what's most important, whether you call it the light, whether you call it God, you know, wh- whatever you call it, the most important thing is that you're sincere in, in your path um, and that you follow your path. And there is somebody in the audience, <clears throat> they, don't make, they don't make talk shows like this anymore, who got to chime in and interrupt Oprah. Um, she said, that can't be true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to God. And, and Oprah said, no, 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 no. How could you say that? And here was, her, here was her question. What about the person who has never heard? What about the person who's never heard of God? Are you telling me that that person can't find God? That that person won't go to heaven? Surely, whatever their truth is, even if they don't call it Jesus, surely that's good enough. And the clip cut off. I don't know if the lady was able to to give a response. 
But I think if we're honest, all of us have felt that question in one way or another. What about the person who's never heard? What would we say? What would you say to Oprah? It's a question that should cause all of us to to really stop and and think. Think about what God's word says. I want to give you just four things uh, to to think about in relation to this question. The the first, and and we won't go to all these passages because we won't have time, but I'll just I'll mention them. The first is this, that there is no one who is innocent of sin. There is no one in a remote place somewhere in the world who is free from sin and who hasn't rebelled against God. Romans 3, 19 through really 23 show us that all of us are condemned because of sin. All of us have chosen to go our own way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is innocent. All of us stand guilty before a righteous and holy God. But we also see that salvation comes through faith in Christ. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation given. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. There is salvation found in no other person but Jesus. In Romans 10.13-15, Paul paints this very step-by-step process. That how can a person believe unless they hear the message of the gospel. And how will they hear the message of the gospel unless somebody preaches it, unless somebody tells it to them? Not like necessarily preach on a stage, but go and shares this message with them. And how will they have somebody who preaches the message unless they are sent? Salvation hangs upon people hearing the message of Christ that they might believe. But then third, we, we also know that God finds those who are seeking. Read Acts 8 and Acts 10. How in the world would an Ethiopian eunuch find his way to Jerusalem to hear the message about the suffering servant who is called Christ? Were it not for God's sovereign grace pursuing. Acts 10, Cornelius was a, was a Roman centurion who had no business of seeking after and hearing about this God of Israel, this Messiah named Jesus. But God orchestrated events in such a way that God revealed himself to Cornelius to go send his people to go find Peter, who Peter, though he was opposed to going to talk to the Gentiles, God worked in such a way to soften Peter's heart to understand that no people are unclean, that you should go to where I'm calling you to tell this man about me. And so Peter goes. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know who he's following. He shows up and he says, what do you guys want? And they said, well, God told us for you to come here so that you could tell us whatever you're supposed to tell us. And then Peter opened his mouth and shared the gospel. God finds those who are seeking, we see repeatedly throughout the scriptures. I don't know if your testimony may be the same. I know mine is true. I wasn't seeking God. I didn't know that I needed him. But God made himself known to me through another person coming, loving, reaching out, sharing. And then the final thing is this. Jesus has called us to go to those who had never heard in Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus gives these final marching orders to the church. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you to the end of the age. You see, Jesus has called us to go to those who may not know. The logic of if those who have never heard can be saved, the best thing for us to do as Christians then would be to shut our mouths and never tell anyone about Jesus. Because the moment we speak of Jesus and someone knows of Jesus, then they would stand responsible, right? That, that's the logic. If, if we could say that there is someone who's never heard, therefore they will get a pass into the kingdom. The logic would be for us not to tell anyone about Jesus so that as many people as possible get a pass. But instead, what Jesus calls his people to do is not to sit comfortably, but to go. But to go, whether that be across our street, throughout North America, or to the ends of the earth, to go. I think it was Francis Schaeffer, great teacher in the church. He said, if we speak of judgment, let us speak of judgment with tears in our eyes. I can't help, as I remember sitting in my dorm in college, just wrestling with God about the reality of hell. How could this be, God? Can't there be another way? Can't there be something else? And just time and time again, coming back to the scriptures, coming back more than anything to the words of Jesus, to this reality of an eternal destiny, one path leading to destruction, one path leading to life. Jesus doesn't doesn't just offer a response of, you know, I hope you figure it out. He says, enter here. And if he cared enough to say, enter here, How can we as his people not say but anything else? This is the way. And this way is good. So there are two ways. Two paths. Not all paths lead to God, Jesus says. But then he says there are two teachers. He offers somewhat of a warning that not everyone aligns with truth. He says in in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. And grapes are grapes, he says, gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus' invitation now is followed by this warning to beware of false prophets. These false prophets are both dangerous and deceptive. Wolves, who are dangerous, disguised in sheep's clothing, he says. Jesus isn't oblivious to the fact that here he is delivering this message of the kingdom, that there are others who will have competing messages. You know, I I think sometimes we think about um, Christianity and and other religions and we're like, why are there so many different ways? Um, and, and it feels like today, maybe there are, it feels like there are even more ways than there ever were. Um, but I'm encouraged that Jesus, Jesus isn't blind to the fact that there are other people saying other things. He says, beware of those who seek to lead you astray. He presses home this point, who you listen to matters. First and foremost, do you listen to God's word? But then beyond that, those who speak on God's behalf through his word. What do they believe? How do they live? 
Who you listen to matters, he says. So how do we know a false prophet? And furthermore, in some ways, this call to beware of false prophets sounds really harsh and condemning. I mean, I think we, we just heard Jesus talk about uh, calling us not to be judgmental, right? In Matthew 7, he said, judge not lest you be judged, though he calls us to judge with a careful judgment, uh, with, with a humility taking the log out of our own eyes so that we could see the speck and our brother or sister's eye to help them, but then also with a, a measure of discernment uh, as, we, as we judge it. That's the discernment that he's calling for here. We have to heed his word. Uh, we, we live in an age where information is readily available and accessible. In our pockets, we have all the information that we could ever imagine about all kinds of things, religious or otherwise. And so he says, beware of false prophets. And so we have to ask ourselves, what... What is a false prophet? How do we identify a false prophet? <clears throat> a false teacher, so to speak. In First uh, Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 16, um, as Paul spoke to, to Timothy, he gave him uh, a, a similar warning in relation to, um, <clears throat> to his job as a teacher in the church. He says, command and teach these things, the, the scriptures. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Watch your life, he's saying. Live in a manner that's pleasing to God. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is what shapes what we do as a church when we gather. It's why we read the Scriptures, why we teach from them and seek to exhort from them. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see yourself, so that all may see your progress. And listen to verse 16. This is what Paul tells Timothy, a leader in the church. Keep a close watch on yourself, your life, and on your teaching. For by doing so, you will save yourself and others, your hearers. Two ways to identify a false teacher. First is teaching that contradicts God's word. First way to identify a false teacher is teaching that contradicts God's word. <clears throat> Sometimes I think about how we got where we are today in American Christianity <clears throat> with, um, with somewhat of a, um, on the whole, a pretty um, weak view of God and the scriptures and God's holiness and sin. Uh, all these things. How, how do we get to this point? We never arrive somewhere out of a vacuum. <clears throat> I want to give you a little bit of a, a history lesson, if I could. <clears throat> I want to introduce you to Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, it's a fun word to say when you're upset, you know, Schleiermacher. You know, like um, <clears throat> Schleiermacher um, was a theologian, a German theologian. Now, listen, listen to what Schleiermacher's problem was. He was teaching in a university, <clears throat> and he noticed that many people in his university context didn't believe the stuff that was in the Bible. But Schleiermacher was a sincere guy. He wanted people to believe God and follow God. So <clears throat> he wrote a book called On Religion, Speeches uh, to Its Cultured Despisers. Uh, so he was trying to address those cultural despisers in the university context who were against religion. He was trying to commend religion to them. Well, here was Schleiermacher's route. He said, in order to make Christianity more acceptable and palatable to my friends in the university, what I have to do is redefine the essence of religion. 
Religion isn't about doctrine. It's not about belief. Nor is religion about ethics. That's what the Enlightenment said. It kind of got rid of a lot of the the doctrine of the church and said, if you live an ethical life, as long as you don't hurt others, you live a decent life, then uh, that's the essence of religion. Instead, Schleiermacher said that the essence of religion is feeling, our emotion, our sense of God, feeling absolute dependence on God, he said. So he said what defines religion is feeling, not doctrine. So Jesus wasn't the Savior who laid down his life on the cross for sinners, but Jesus was the supreme example of God consciousness, of being aware of our need for God. So he said to believe is not to believe in Christ. To believe is to believe as Christ, to follow his example, and that our faith is found in the experience of God. So, don't worry about the miracles. Don't, don't worry about the stuff about Jesus that offends you. Allow for a sense of God to define you. This was in the early 1800s. This is when Schleiermacher wrote on religion. In 1934, another <clears throat> uh, professor and theologian named Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called The Kingdom of God in America. And Niebuhr was critiquing the, the, the teaching of Schleiermacher and others. Schleiermacher is considered the father of uh, kind of um, <clears throat> modern liberalism, if you will, in terms of theological truth, in terms of what we believe about God. This downgrading of the Bible, of the miracles, of the divinity of Jesus. I mean, you think about the core essence of Christianity, totally flipped upside down. That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is your experience of God. Um, <clears throat> Niebuhr said, when I look at Christianity in America, what he called modernism, this is how he describes it. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You strip away God's holiness. You strip away our sinfulness. You strip away the cross. But did you, do you remember what Schleiermacher's desire was? I want Christianity to be accepted by my friends. Schleiermacher wasn't this evil dude over here working something up, trying to dupe everybody. He wanted his friends in his university context to believe. But oh, the danger. The danger of moving away from God's word. Allowing, whether it be our feelings or some other standard to define what we believe. Beware of teaching that contradicts God's word. No doubt there are things that we must wrestle with and interpret. And you could say, oh, that's a matter of interpretation. And yes, there are good rules and ways in which we can interpret the scriptures. And the history of the church upon which we can stand to navigate and try to understand how to wrestle with these things. But we can't neglect God's word. Beware of any teaching that contradicts the word of God. In Jeremiah 6, verses 13 through 16, God, I've read this passage before <clears throat> where, where basically God is going to say, come follow the ancient paths. But, but listen to what comes before. He says, from the least to the greatest of them in Jeremiah 6, verses 13 through 16, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. 
when there is no peace? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know even how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish men. Punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. But then watch what the Lord says. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good and walk in it and find rest for your souls. See, the false teachers were offering answers that treated the wound and the problems of the people lightly. They were saying, oh, you're fine. Peace, peace. But there was no peace when we are an enemy of God. But God doesn't leave us there. He says, no, come, stand by the road. Stand right here and look. Look for the ancient path. And on that path, it's good. On that path, you'll find rest. We have to watch for a teaching that contradicts God's word. But the point that Jesus really presses here is that we we can identify teachers by a character that compromises godliness. Character that compromises godliness. Jesus put it this way twice in verse 16 and verse 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. A little horticultural lesson, right? Or, you know, orange trees don't produce apples, right? Um, Unhealthy, bad trees don't produce good fruit. But good trees produce good fruit, right? Uh, the, the Wassum apple farm has good apple trees that produce good apples that make good apple cider donuts, right? That's the good fruit. Um, and you should all say amen. Um, Jesus is, is saying, watch their life. Not just their teaching, watch their life. Does their life commend what the Sermon on the Mount commends? Is there evidence of godliness? Are they dependent on God and aware of their spiritual need, confident in God's sufficient grace, more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing others? Do they love others well, holding both to truth and grace? We'll see throughout the scriptures continually, God calls leaders within the church to to lead and guard uh, the church from false teaching. But ultimately, it's upon the people of God to be aware of what God's word says So that they hold fast to God's word. So the call is, what are you listening to? Be careful what you listen to, Jesus says. We need discernment. Watch what those that you listen to, watch what they teach. Does it contradict God's word or is it rooted in God's word? And then watch their life. Does their character compromise godliness? Two teachers. Not everyone aligns with the truth. Be warned, Jesus says. Then two, two responses. Not all professions are true. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, in, in these verses, Jesus gives us a, a little bit of a pop quiz. I know we're nearing the end of the semester. Some of you haven't been in school for a while. Um, let me give you a pop quiz. What must characterize the life of every true follower of Christ? What's the, the one thing that must characterize the life of every true follower of Christ? Is it A, verbal profession? Yes, Lord, Lord. Is it B, religious activity? 
doing many things for God? Or is it C, humble obedience? You should always guess C, right? That's, is that still the, the common wisdom of the day? That's, that was the wisdom of my day. Uh, always guess C, if, uh, if in doubt. Uh, the, the thing that must define the life of every believer, in some ways all of these things should be reflective of the life of every believer, but according to what Jesus says here, that two of them can be present but, and not be ultimately a true follower. The life of a believer is the one who does the will of the Father. He goes on in verses 24 through 26, 27. He says, Everyone who hears the word of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and huffed and he puffed. No, beat against the house, right? The last part wasn't in there. And beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And in contrast, everyone who hears the word of mine and doesn't do them, that's obedience, who doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So Jesus says, obedience is what defines us. Doing the will of the Father, hearing His words and doing them. Not mere profession, Lord, Lord, or doing many mighty things for God. But something is amiss because as hard as this is to hear, how how could you say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. And then you get to the end and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. It's unsettling. Honestly, if you profess faith in Christ, if you read that, I think it should and, and no doubt can unsettle all of us. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the life of every believer is marked by humble obedience. So... Does this mean obedience merits our salvation? That if we, do, oh, if we obey God, if we do the commands of God, then God will save us? I don't think that's the right equation. I think what Jesus is saying is, is more about what lies behind our obedience. Look at verse 21. Obedience stems from saying, not my will, but the Father's will. Obedience stems from submitting to God's way and not choosing your own way. Verse 24 says, when you hear God's word and you do them, that means that you, you submit yourself to him and to what he said. All true obedience comes from a heart level allegiance to Jesus. Obedience springs forth from faith. Another way of saying this is that Jesus desires obedience, not obedience that seeks merit, that's seeking something from God, but rather obedience that flows from submission to God. The obedience that marks the life of a believer is the obedience that bows the knee to Jesus. That's the obedience that marks the life of the believer. Without faith, without allegiance to Jesus, obedience will always wane. We, we, can, we can play the game for a while, but we'll tire out. Our profession will prove false. Our spiritual activity will prove itself empty. Jesus says something here that in our day and age, we often ask ourselves, you know, what do I think about God? But according to verses 21 through 23, the the question that we shouldn't be too quick to neglect is, what does God think about me? What does God think about me? Not only do I know God, but does God 
know me? It's the question that we must ask. Now, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Should these verses make you question your salvation? Not in the least. Hear me, your salvation is secured not based on your performance, but based on the perfect performance of Christ on your behalf. In Christ alone we stand. But Jesus does say that our life rooted in grace should produce obedience. So Jesus isn't saying you should question your salvation. Jesus says to every believer, you should examine your life. Do you see evidence of humble obedience in your life? Does your obedience seek to earn something from God or is your obedience because you've already received all that you need in Christ? That's what true obedience springs from. And frankly, if you find it easy to to dismiss what God says, that's when you know you should examine your heart the most to hear his word and not do them. Jesus says puts us on an unstable foundation on shifting sand. But hear me, the Christian isn't one who doesn't sin. The Christian is one who is not comfortable with their sin. The Christian is one who, when they see their sin, they're broken over their sin. They mourn over their sin. They return to God in repentance. They count on God's grace to forgive. And they know that it's God's grace that sustains and that enables future obedience. We should be strengthened by Jesus' call to examine our hearts and our lives because we can be secure in his abundant grace for us. And it's his abundant grace that motivates our faithful obedience. Jesus doesn't allow us just to say, yeah, I'm down with Jesus. I like most of what he says, but I'm kind of adding Jesus into my life, into my thing. Jesus says that our life must be marked by an allegiance to him that produces obedience. And just think about yourself and be patient with others as they're seeking to follow and figure out what it means to follow Christ. I am grateful that God put people in my life who are patient with me to walk alongside me. They say, let's let's think about what God says. Does that desire, does that action, does that thought align with God's word? And oh, the grace that's found in Christ when we come to him again and again. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus said, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls us to an obedience. He puts that yoke upon us. But in following him, he gives us what we need and and his way is good. Two responses. Not every profession is true, but it ultimately ends with this, with one question. How will you respond to Jesus? Verses 28 and 29 say this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the sermon concludes with the crowd's response to Jesus. It says they were astonished, particularly astonished at him teaching with authority. He taught with an authority that was unlike anything that they had seen. Because Jesus was unlike anyone that they had seen. And so the the Sermon on the Mount ends with this question. Not what do you make of Jesus' teaching, but what do you make of Jesus? Not do you like this or that, 
But what do you make of Jesus? So what basis should you submit your life to Jesus? Merely my recommendation? No, consider, consider Jesus. He's the one with authority. And the truth is we will either submit to him in this life or our submission will one day happen when we stand before him at the final judgment, condemned because of unbelief. The sermon doesn't end with lofty thoughts of human goodness. One author says, sprinkled liberally with naive hope about the inevitability of human progress. It offers two ways and only two. Jesus says one path leads to life and that path is found in him. He has all authority. To him all must give an account. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. And we may choose not to believe in him. But he can't be one truth among many. He won't leave us that option. What do you make of Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? He offers us life. And the most profound thing is the invitation to life he offers through laying down his life for us. Through his death on the cross. He says, I will lay down my life so that you might have life. And he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. This is the glorious message of Christianity, of the gospel. And he offers it to everyone, everywhere, at all time. To turn from your way, from your sin, and to find life in Jesus. You could do it today. Lay your head down on your pillow at night and say, how have I responded to Jesus? Do I know him? He's not far off and distant, but he's made himself known. And church, listen to me. We are built upon Jesus' word. A word that is good and true. Maybe hard. It may challenge us and press us. But Jesus says, come, stand right here. Look, look for my path. Look for me, I'm the gate. Enter in and find green pasture, find life. This is what the church is built on. Let's pray.